honey. Hey, mom. What you doing? I'm just getting the podcast ready for Kristen tonight. Oh, no, but you're record. They're not like live podcasts. No, we're recording it. We'll release it in about three weeks. That's what I saw on your Facebook. I just wanted to make sure that was right. That's what I saw. And then I saw something else today that said you were going to have several. And it sounded like you'd really small ones. Okay, I'll, I'll keep my eye on that. Okay, I had a question. So I'm, I'm right now I'm practicing the recording on the phone. So you're being recorded, but I'll, I'll, I'll okay. delete it. But I was wondering, and you don't have to do this. If you would tell the story, the brownie story, because you're in Colorado right now, if you if you'd be willing to tell that story for the podcast. Oh, you mean about me going, me and Carrie going to the restaurant? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, and you have to realize it had been forty five, yeah, forty five years since I'd ever had anything to do with pot. So yeah, so it must have affected me super um, potent. But yeah, I mean, I guess I can. <laughs> Right. It is it is really wild <laughs> what they did. <laughs> so kind of cute too. I mean, kind of fun. So you and Carrie got uh, what was it, a ten milligram brownie each? Um, Carrie, were those ten milligram brownies that I had a half of? Um, yes, you had five. I had five milligrams. Yeah, they were ten milligram brownies, and I had a half. I had five. Yeah. So, yeah. And I just, like I said, I mean, I thought it's just not even affecting me. And then we got in the restaurant and I could not get a sentence out. I'd start to say something and <laughs> and then I, I just start laughing. And then <laughs> it was just the craziest thing. And Carrie told me, don't tell, don't tell the, you don't have to tell the flight. I mean, the, the flight attendant, let's say, <laughs> you don't have to tell the, um, the server and I'm like yeah but she's gonna wonder why I'm acting so crazy so and she goes yeah but you don't have to so she came up and I told her (laughs) (laughs) Carrie was kind of rolling her eyes but then everybody kind of changed changed around us it seemed (laughs) it was so funny then of course when they lined up that was the funniest thing to say goodbye (laughs) they were messing with you it sounds like (laughs) <laughs> they were messing with me. They were. But when Carrie got in the car, she goes, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the peace on drugs. All right, so I'm here with my sister Kristen. That was uh, our mother giving us yeah. the introduction. So it's a funny story, and it's funny to me because it's funnier to mom than it actually is. And I think it's because when you're really high and you're in the story, she ate a brownie, like she said, 45 years or something since she had ever, you know, since she had smoked pot. And um, the funniest part for me is this image of of mom leaving and all the she said that she told me in detail a little more detail about it said the cooks and the servers were all lined up saying goodbye to her when she was leaving they may have been messing with her but also they may have not even been messing with her at all they may have just been you know how people congregate around the host stand that friends or talk servers are there talking and then like a, a cook comes out hitting on the host and they're all just kind of talking and then a customer leaves and i go bye and they all wave bye and mom's like oh my god they all came out to see because i'm so high you know and it could have been that i don't know it could have been either one but it's just funny to me our, our mom being high and anybody who's listening who knows our mother she's not um really into anything as far as like stuff like, like even alcohol she, she drinks now a little bit 
but it's like a yeah. glass of wine in one glass. She's like, oh, I'm so buzzed. <laughs> That's cute. I wanted to talk with you about the uh, Mexican drug cartel problem and what's happening south of the border. And, um, and I know that you're not an expert in the, in the drug issues that are happening down there, but that, but you did major in, you have your master's in Latin American studies in Spanish, correct? Yes. So you, so you do have an understanding of some of the ac- economic uh, things that have, the, the, there's a there's this whole economic thing that happened between South American countries and Middle American and us. Um, and oh, definitely. Um, there has been basically the gist of it is the United States, this wealthy country. They, they call us the giant to the north. We are. It's basically a modern empire. They call it modern imperialism. We have set up um, companies all over Latin America and we send all of the profits back to the United States and don't pay the workers anything and don't reinvest anything in their local economies. And we have over time created, uh, I mean, it really started with colonialism in Spain, but then it transferred at, at some point as they became independent from Spain. We basically filled that void and uh, the transfer of wealth from Latin America to the United States has been astronomical and completely devastating on all of the countries south of the border. It is. Now, I remember you told me, uh, you had me read the book, um, Lat- uh, was it uh, The Open Veins of Latin America? Yes. And, um, and I remember one thing in that book that Bolivia actually had a very strong economy at one point. It's like they were going to be one of the more uh, a powerful nation in the south. And um, we, according to what I was reading in that book, the United States actually helped topple that regime to put in our own people or to, to help uh, uh, an administration that would work with us with the trade policies we wanted. And the reason they're so poor today is because of the trade policies that we were able to implement with the regime that we helped promote because they were able at first to manufacture their own goods with, um, with, with the resources they had. But, our, but the trade laws specify you can't make stuff with your goods. You got to ship it over to different countries and we will make the stuff. You can't do, make it and ship it from there. Something like that. Yeah, well, they do have a problem with um, being just exporters of raw materials and um, they don't tend to refine it or turn it into the product that actually makes the money. Right, so, but, but, but that was a part of the, that they, if they did that, they, weren't, they wouldn't be able to sell it. That was actually part of a trade agreement and from that, the book they were talking about, that if they did build computer parts, they couldn't trade, they couldn't sell them. They could only ship raw materials and the United States wanted those laws. Like, we want to make the stuff that makes money. We want the raw materials from you. Yeah, for nothing. Because they, 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 oh, sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, just, and we want to own the company that um, controls that raw material. Uh, you know, before Fidel Castro in Cuba, the United States owned about half of the sugar industry in Cuba, just U.S. companies did. So, I mean, they didn't, the workers had no, they were off half the year and the other half of the year they were paid nothing. They had nowhere else to go. That was their only industry. I mean, you can understand why these socialist revolutions tried to take place where they said, we want our country back. We were tired of you taking all of our money, but, uh, I forget where I'm going with that. Well, I well, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what happens in a country like Cuba when you, when we can't overthrow, when we did try to overthrow the government, remember they tried to make it, I think the plan was was to take down a plane and make it look like it was an attack from Cuba so that we could attack them. But something happened. Yes. JFK pulled out of the plan, something like that. 
Yes. But um, so and, that but the problem is when you can't take down a, somebody like Felda Castro, you, you demonize them for being communist and you shut all the trade off, and that devastates their economy enough to where you try to get them to play ball that way by we're going to yeah. do sanctions, and yeah. it's it's really kind of fucked up what what's you know went down with them, with the whole with the whole southern border. So that, that to bring us into the drug trade. So I know that you didn't specify in what's happening with the drug war, but we just both read or listened to an audible um, El Narco. Yes. And um, but but you got to think that's one of the biggest problems is the way United States, the way we've devastated some of these economies, and made it to where if you want to do an honest uh, days, have an honest living in some of these countries, not saying there's no jobs, but for the but there's not enough for everybody. So some people are going to be dirt poor, but there is one job that's readily available, and that's you know help move some drugs for these cartels, and that's going to get you out of the slums. And into some serious money. Now, it's probably going to mean your life is going to be a lot shorter because you're going to either be locked up or you're going to be murdered. But before that happens, you're going to have all kinds of women and money and cars and riches. And it's um, and we've we've created this this through, through multiple. It's, it's all these different layers of things that have happened with our relationship with the border of the South. But you know, it goes into the um, the idea that we should just build a wall, right? Like this. Yeah. Like like all the problems that we've helped create, let's just build a wall and shut it out. But um, I, I was thinking, I actually didn't want to get into this this early about the wall, but I, I was thinking an interesting thing when I was listening to this book, something I hadn't thought about was with the wall, that there's this idea that the drugs are flowing in here and we have to stop them however we can. Like all these cocaine and heroin are just flowing in. How do we stop them? These stupid Mexicans are bringing in these drugs. We build a wall, we get the drugs out. Well, there's another flow that I didn't really think about before that, but there's a flow of money and guns coming from our country to Mexico. They could just as well want to build a wall to stop that from happening because the money that's buying the drugs is the reason they're sending them here is that we're the ones wanting to sniff up the drugs up our noses and everything. So we're funding the cartels that are these murderous... I mean, they've done things like cut off somebody's face and sew it to a soccer ball to send a message. And that's just one of the many horrific things these people do. And they are funded by us. 90% of the guns that they use are built and manufactured and sold by U.S. gun stores who profit off of them. So, yes. so there's a f- I actually looked into that a little bit more because he didn't really... I was, I was telling my husband Kyle about um, the, the, dr- the gun guns mm-hmm. coming from the United States down. And he said, well, why can't they just get them in Mexico? So I actually did a little bit more research, just a little bit. And and it, it Mexico has, because they have such a bad problem with, especially with the AK-47s being in the hands of these giant criminal organizations that we call cartels, uh, Mexico has really strict gun laws. And there are very, very few places that you can even, as a citizen, buy a gun. And one of the places is just outside of Mexico City. But it said something about maybe like 30 guns uh, are purchased a day there by law-abiding citizens. In the, same, um, in the same day, they would have an estimated, of course, there's no way to really read this, but over 500 guns a day coming down, being smuggled into Mexico from the United States. So it it's almost ironic that we're so hateful and, and just build the wall actually won Trump his presidency. And they have really bad issues with not having a law and order at the border also. Uh, 
Yeah. It's just a, yeah. Well, that, and also there's a, there is a reason why, well, why can't we stop these manufacturers from profiting? Because they're, they're profiting hugely off of the sales of these guns. And it's kind of disgusting that, they, and I, it's almost like, they they don't they're not purposely selling these these guns to cartel members. They're not like oh I don't care who you are. No, they're selling them legally, but I don't think they care either because they're getting paid. So on some level, it's just like just if I don't know about it, I don't care. I'm gonna get paid because I, I think if they cared a little more, they could stop those guns from going into those hands. I think, but there's a huge lobby from the NRA to any kind of control of of monitoring guns is a big no no. And I think. It shouldn't be that hard. I'm not anti-guns. I'm a gun owner. You guys are gun owners. But I'm also, let's make sure you're not uh, criminally insane. Like when I went and bought my shotgun recently, there was there's no questions like, you know, have you been laid off recently? Something that might trigger you to buy a gun and go shoot something up. No, no what's going on in your life right now? None of that. Just do you have a criminal record? No, sign here, fill here, boom, here's your gun. And, yeah. And I think it's a little too easy. Um, it, oh, it is. No, it, undoubtedly, our lax gun laws have created the smuggling that's going on in Mexico, where the cartels are able to easily get their hands on these guns. Mexico's trying to crack down, and the U.S. and Mexican government need to come together and say, this is a problem for both countries. Let's see what we can do in the United States to help. And one of the things we can do is make it harder for people to get assault weapons at a regular gun store. It's just, it's ridiculous that these military style guns are being smuggled across the border and used in all kinds of horrific murders. I, I When I was reading this book, there were parts I had to just like skip ahead 30 seconds. Like I just can't, I can't even, it's, it's so, so gruesome. Yes. You know what's crazy? So I'm reading this other book that my buddy Mike, I talked about on my first podcast. It's called In Cold Blood. And it's about this family that got murdered. Uh, um, there was four family members that got shot uh, by, you know, point blank shotguns. These Anyway, but it was this whole book and this guy spent, you know, his whole career or a lot of his career writing it and, and I was just thinking about how crazy it is for this kind of story to happen in America that a whole book and movies made about it. But what's happening in Mexico makes this book look like nothing. Like it's like, oh, a family got yeah. murdered once. Like how about I'm walking to work and there's a whole family murdered in the streets and that's just the way we live. It's so gruesome down there that, that you couldn't write a book that even made sense. And that brings me up to one, one uh, story in the book that really kind of touched me was this woman, she was saying... She was praying for like a superman or a superhero to just come and protect her yeah. or, and to stop these violent criminals. And, and the author said, he said, you know, it sounds crazy. It sounds, you know, of course, so, no superhero is going to come save us. And they said, but it's, it's almost, um, I don't remember exactly what his point was with uh, where I'm going with that. But he, he, said, he said, if you think about like these superhero movies like Gotham, he's like, what's happening in Mexico is worse than anything happened in Gotham that Batman needed to be there to help. Gotham did not have what's literally happening in real life in Mexico right now. And it's yeah. so fucking sad. And you have families who are who know, like, your son, when he turns 13 or 14, is going to have the option to work for a murderous cartel and make good money or barely get by trying to do the right thing. And his choice is going to be so hard. And um, like there was that story of the people that liked to race cars. That that was their whole thing. Yeah. Uh, they, they were like, we were like Fast and the Furious. They, they were, or, or 
They were like, they, they said the difference was is it wasn't about anything except for racing. There was no ga- crazy gambling. It was just how badass of a car can you build? They, they owned a garage. That's how they made their money was fixing cars. And then they built, they built these cars. And then all of a sudden, one day, some rich guy shows up and, and needs some work done on his car. Hey, I'll, you know, I'll pay you guys whatever it was, you know, 500 American dollars, something like that, to drive yeah. this car. It's going to be filled with cocaine in the tires. You're just going to drive it up, you know, uh, you know, 100 miles and you're going to make all this money. And they started, oh, that sounds easy. I can do that. So they so they take the job. Next thing you know, like fast forward three months, they have lots of money. One of the guys has met a girl and got married. They're, they're rich as hell. And all they're doing is just driving these cars, not really considering the fact that they're running drugs. That's what they're doing and they know it. But they're they're just, this is way making more money. And they're thinking with this money, the cars we can race. We can build these even better cars and race them. And then he gets this huge job to drive uh, a bunch of drugs into the United States and gets busted. And the worst part about the story wasn't even that, I mean, uh, that he's serving life now in fucking an American jail. That's awful. But not only the fact that the chances are what probably happened was there was a bigger drug. Uh, they were trying to bring in a bigger load. So what they do is they have this guy go in and get busted with like 10 kilos, but then the other guy can skate by with 100 kilos, and they don't care if that guy's going to jail. And also, the guy who showed up in the Mercedes that gave the guys the job, once that bus happened, they never saw him again. Don't know what happened. Yeah. They, so, so they can't even turn, they can't even rat. They can't even be like, I'll tell you who he is to lessen my sentence. They don't know who he is. All they know is they got set up or didn't get set up, but either way, they're just they're just poor people trying to make money, and now they're in our, our jail forever. I know, I know. I yeah, I I I I wrote down a bunch of notes while we were uh, while I was reading, and one of my notes just says, "We must care about them. They are people." I mean, I feel like the whole drug war we we have really dehumanized people i mean everyone involved in it you're either a gangster or you're just um an illegal you're i mean these are human beings they're suffering we need to come together with mexican government with our government on an international level and do something about the drug problem and and the drug problem is more than just people doing drugs it's the fact that it needs to be decriminalized um, and, and I thought at the end of the book, he made a really good argument about uh, the benefits of decriminalization. Uh, he, I, it seems like no, he, he was maybe about legalization. was leaning. Because, so you have decriminalization versus legalization. And his yeah. point is, so Oregon, for instance, just decriminalized. And that means you're not going to get, if you have a personal amount of whatever substance you're addicted to or just using recreationally, you're not a criminal, you're not going to go to jail. That's decriminalization. The problem is, is if, say your drug's heroin and it's decriminalized, you're still buying it on the street and it's still cut with fentanyl. It's still going, the money's still going to murderous cartels. So the idea is legalize it. Go to, if somebody is a heroin addict, go to a doctor. The doctor can, this is how, this is how it was in the 30s and the 20s before we outlawed it. You go to your doctor and the doctor didn't want you on heroin. The doctor wasn't like, yeah, here's heroin. It was more like, yeah, you're going to do it anyway. I'll write you a prescription. So what, what we ha- need to have is a system where if you're a heroin addict, you can go to a place, you can talk to a doctor, they're going to recommend counseling, they're going to give you heroin, clean needles, it's going to be a good product, they're going to try to come up with a plan to get you off of it, but meanwhile, you're going to get heroin. And some people, you got to understand, most of these people are people that were horribly, had things happen in their childhood or something that they just couldn't get over, some trauma, and they've used drugs to self-medicate, and some of these people will never get off heroin. And if that's the case, so be it. 
Give them heroin, let them live their lives, and they're going to live a decent life on heroin. It sounds crazy, but you can. But a lot of those people, that the trauma that they suffered can be undone. They can, through therapy, get them off of heroin and leave a, a positive life. None of it happens when you're scoring on the streets. There's no therapy offered. There's no consistency in your product you're getting. There's no chance. There, there's a chance that you're going to get something that's lethal. There's a chance you're going to get something. There's people that are injecting brick dust. They're losing limbs. I mean, these are crazy things that are happening to drug addicts. And these are mostly people that are sick. Actually, it's all people that are sick. If you're a heroin addict scoring on the streets, you are sick. Something, no, like, I, you know, I, I, I'm a drug enthusiast in some ways, but I tell you this, I don't go on the street scoring heroin because, well, for one, it's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I don't do that. But um, the thing, the, the main thing is, is that these drugs are extremely dangerous. And if you are... If you feel like that's what you need, then there's something clearly wrong in your life that you need help. The last thing we yeah. need is a, crim- a, a law, a criminal justice system that arrests you for that. So, but anyway, but back to yeah. to the Mexico thing. Um, let's see, I have a list here of things I wanted to talk about. Um, all right, we, we covered the drug flow and the money flow. That was a big part. Um, about because uh, just to retouch on that one more time though about the build a wall thing the mentality of these people are bringing drugs over here imagine if you're a Mexican looking at that perspective of like oh oh are are some of us bringing drugs over there who's buying them you are all by paying for them the money's coming here and funding cartels and also where are the guns coming from because though drugs do kill people with overdoses definitely um, guns are specifically designed to kill people. The drugs at least are supposed to make you feel good and not kill you, supposed to. Um, guns are, these are weapons that are gonna, when, as soon as they come over the border for, for the narcos to use, they're gonna be used to murder people. And that's what the whole purpose is. So I would be more offended if I was on that side of the border. But like, we should build a wall to get your fucking money and guns out of our country. And the, but the, the, why the author's talking about legalization is if we move it into off the black market and into the real market, the cartels go out of business. I mean, you're you're fighting with territory and other cartels. If all of a sudden the government could legalize and 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 actually produce heroin and everything else and sell it, now the biggest problem with that would be is that if that does happen, the U.S. the U.S. has to legalize also. Remember, so I asked you this question: What happens if Mexico legalizes? What happens with their relationship with us? Because the United States, oh, and you know, that's one thing you talked about in the book was the United Nations, any member of the United Nations, United Nations kind of have a strict prohibition policy. So when California yeah. first had medical marijuana, and this is one of the things that's, that sucks about this book being 10 years old, is because it was written before there's yeah. all this legal weed. Because it was like, if California, like they've already broken the UN code when they made medical marijuana, and they said it, they're planning on doing recreational, and if it passes, it's going to violate UN code. Well, what happens? And I'm like, well, now I got to research that because what did happen it's already done and yeah. i think what's going to happen is the u.s ultimately is more powerful than u.n and if the u.s changes drug policy everybody else can follow suit but they but we have to set the example on yeah. that one yeah i did actually do a little bit of research on that because that is an interesting point and throughout um the past 50 years there there have been three different u.n conventions where they set kind of an international drug control uh policy uh in the last one in 1988 was called the Convention Against Illicit Trafficking of Narcotic Drugs and Psychotrophic Substances. So they basically have taken that stance of um, prohibition 
and uh, we're going to kind of unify against uh, people doing drugs. But then this, I read, it was a paper that somebody wrote about it, but he basically said that people are, countries are becoming more lax around the world and everyone that joined this um, kind of coalition against drugs, uh, some of them are starting to pull back and it does seem, it, it's become not a if we legalize, but when and how. Yeah. So it, that's it's kind of changing. And in 2001, Portugal, okay, they didn't legalize. They, they decriminalized. Decri- decriminalized yeah. all drugs, yes. like all classes. And uh, and it's actually been really successful. The age rate has gone way down. They, they had to implement also social and health policies simultaneously where – they would actually cite people, like if you got caught with more drugs than you were supposed to have, you might get a citation, but it's not a criminal citation. And now you have to see a counselor and they're going to see what's going on. And it's actually been very successful. So this argument that that lots of people against legalization have where if they legalize, everyone's going to all of a sudden start doing all these drugs is actually statistically in countries that have done Uruguay is another one that have done legalization or decriminalization efforts. Uh, it did not go up. And like, it won't. You know why, though? Because yeah. people don't want to do drugs. It's not like the only thing stopping me from being a, a crack addict is the law. No, I don't want to be a crack addict because I have a good life that I live. And that's the thing. When you take away, strip people of the things that they love in life, for instance, take them to jail, slap them with a criminal record, they're not able to get a job. These are things you're stripping them of the things they love. They're going to be more likely to continue to be addicted or do the things that they were doing. And exactly. So, and this, so Portugal in 2000, when the, so how they, I was reading, it was in Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. He explained that they, they had a drug problem in Portugal and, and um, they went to their scientific community and they said, hey, how do we fix the drug problem? So the scientists for two years did research, looked at the data and they came back and they said, all right, we figured it out. You need to legalize everything. And so the politicians, of course, were like, that's insane, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they listened to them. They said, even though we think that's the craziest thing ever, we're going to listen to the scientists. And they decriminalized everything. And the first thing that they noticed, which I think is very relevant to what's happening in our country right now, was the relationship with the poor communities and the police officers was immediately restored. And that's what all these uh, in the poor communities where people are getting shot and it's mostly people of color. It's it, there's definitely some systemic racism within within our country, but I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as much racism as it is the poor community versus the law enforcement and law enforcement having to deal with people who are drug dealers who are high on different substances that are illegal that they're terrified of the police because they're going to go to jail for even simple possession. If you can have them to, able to call the cops and actually expect to not go to jail but be helped, they're not the, the cops aren't going to be there ready to shoot them. It's not some of these cops are freaked out because they've been shot at. It happens on that side too. So what you need to do is have it to where don't make them afraid that the cops are here. Make them happy that the cops are here because the cops are here to serve and protect. And if they that's actually what they're doing, then you'll be happy to see the police and you will, and you will not be in any danger because the cops won't feel that they're in any danger. So that's the first yeah. thing that happened in Portugal was that, and that's what we need in this country is a relationship because. Nobody wants to, to defund the police in the literal sense of that, of, of let's just not have cops. No, especially the communities that, where bad things are happening. You need law enforcement, but you need to have a good relationship with law enforcement. Yeah, I, I agree. I just, as far as um, making all drugs legal, I, I feel like 
with marijuana, it, it kind of makes sense. It's I, I don't really understand why it has been prohibited for as long as it has. Uh, it's definitely not. It's I don't know. Just when we look at movies like Cheech and Chong and. Um, I don't know, all those 70s movies where they're like, yeah, we're stoned. Uh, it's just kind of a fun, um, just not a bad drug. I, I just don't, I, it's going to be a lot harder pill to swallow to say, let's go on and make everything legal. Well, here's I, the thing though. So, yeah. so let's say heroin's legal now. That does not mean if I want to do heroin, I get to go to Walgreens or go even go to a heroin shop and just buy heroin. It means I have to go to a doctor and explain why I want to do heroin. And most likely, the way the methadone clinics work, I have to test positive for opiates to say I'm an, I'm an addict. I need – so they go, oh, well, you have it. You know, you've tested positive for opium. Or, but – and this, this is where it gets a little bit strange. It's like should it be like, well, I, I'm not addicted, but I want to do it. I'm going to go score on the streets if you don't give it to me. So, so then that's where that gets like in a, in a strange area. Do we allow somebody who's not addicted but claims that they're going to go on the streets and score to buy it? And my thing is, yeah, if you're an adult, you get to make an adult decision. But I think maybe you sit down with a counselor. They explain the addiction. They explain um, the, the doses and you know things like that. But I honestly think as an adult, you should have the right to do anything that you want to do um, with the exception of hurting other people. And as crazy as it sounds, and I know it does because it's been pumped into our heads through all the institutions that, that, that we grew up with of, of the dangers of drugs. And the, and the thing is, when you think of a heroin addict or a crackhead, you think the most horrible loser piece of shit you can imagine is what's been pumped in our head. The thing is, is I've met people that have done all these drugs. I've done most of them myself. And not everybody that does them is, is the biggest loser in the world. Some people just like different experiences. I'm one of them. I've, I've, like, I've done most drugs out there. And um, most of them are not for me. Like, like smoking crack is, is to me crazy. And should crack be legal? I don't know. Maybe if we legalized just good cocaine and you were able to go to a doctor and explain your situation and get a little bit of cocaine here and there, maybe crack would just kind of go away or people would cook up their own shit. But that's a whole crack. Crack and meth are hard ones to swallow for me. Um, heroin's even hard. But the problem is, look what's happening right now. Fentanyl is 500 times stronger or 1,000 times, however much stronger than heroin. And it's on the streets. If, if, if we had a legal system that sold heroin, people wouldn't be at risk of dying from a fentanyl overdose. But every heroin addict that's dying right now of fentanyl is a, a heroin addict that's got something that they didn't want to buy that was just put in the drugs. And I mean, look at like Tom Petty and Prince are both dead. You know why they're dead? Because they, they tried to get some painkillers from, you know, or Tom, I know this for Tom Petty at least, I was reading, trying to get some painkillers from one of his fans and they gave him, uh, I believe, I need to research this more, but I believe they gave him like a Percocet or something, but it wasn't what it was supposed to be. They, they have fentanyl and all this stuff now that's on the streets and he took fentanyl, didn't know, because another thing is, Drugs, the, the the doctors are, if you're actually in pain, as Tom Petty was, back pain from touring regularly, he's getting older, the doctors don't just give you out, give out painkillers anymore, so you have to go to the streets, which is even worse. So it's like, I think they should regulate it and make money on it, and then use that money to rehabilitate people, get them off the drugs. What what's Because people, again, you don't want to be an addict. Nobody wants, nobody's excited to wake up and figure out where they're going to get the money to buy their drugs every day. If they can get off of it, their life is going to get significantly better, and they know that. They need help, and we need to help them. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, but I was going to say, I think we should talk about, because I don't know if everyone that would be listening understands exactly 
the extent of the cartel's reach and exactly what I, I wanted to compare it to well, prohibition in the United States. Uh, basically, prohibition created uh, large mafias, which we've all seen in the movies and, and we are, we're pretty familiar with from Hollywood's version of these mafias and, and Al Capone. But it, it created a whole crimin, criminal organization of organized crime um, prohibiting alcohol. And in the same way and on a much larger scale, the prohibition internationally of all of these substances has created, <clears throat> has created for Mexico the same thing, these giant or criminal organizations. And then in the book, he also talks about how they've expanded into other markets. And one of the big ones is human trafficking and um, kidnapping and ex- uh, and getting and getting ransoms for for yeah. migrants. Yeah. So. But, yeah. And he did say though that it's easier to stop the kidnapping and the ransom um, than it would than it is like the, like because it takes human bodies and it's easier for them to track. So they could it's easier to shut that down. Um, than the, the the drugs are the hardest ones. That's where they get their power and their money from. But yeah, no kidnappings become a problem there. And also, uh, like we were talking about the reach of the cartels, the, uh, their influence with um, local government, because if they can't pay their law enforcement enough, if the cops aren't making a very good salary, they're going to be very easily turned. And a lot of the uh, law enforcement in those countries uh, work with the cartels. And they might bust one cartel, but that's because they're actually being paid by a different uh, opposing cartel that's fighting them. And I did like what you said earlier when you said uh, these um, – drug distribution groups or whatever that we call cartels because they don't the cartel is an American term that we kind of use we make it sound like they're these really like almost like government institution style cartels that are all really tight but they're they're kind of very loosely based some of them work with some of them but you know you have the guy that the, the kingpin at, oh you know another thing King, speaking of kingpin at the top was uh, Chapo I'm like this book was written before Chapo was arrested because they're like they might yeah. finally get him I'm like they got him man yeah yeah and, <laughs> That's why I, 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 I yeah I thought that too. I had to look it up. And I was like, wait a second. I remember him being arrested. Yeah, you remember so. when Sean Penn interviewed him before he goes arrested? I believe it was him. No, I didn't see that. It was either him or it was one of the one of the. I I need to look that up. I need to, I need to know this kind of stuff. I should say for my podcast that I am not an expert. I do not have a doctorate in any of this. I am basically just somebody who's. <laughs> Very fascinated with this. I have a strong opinion about the war on drugs, and I want to do a podcast, and I want to have experts on here. That's why I got my sister, because she might not be an expert on the drug problems in, in the South, but she does have her master's in the um, Latin American studies, so she knows a lot more than I do about what's went, went on, been going on down there. And Yeah, and, and just the relationship between Mexico and the United States, and, and really our obligation to help with this issue. We we do share a border with Mexico. It is important to us what is happening south of the border. And the United States has exploited and profited for so long from from Mexico and all of Latin America. We've create we've impoverished their society. We've created a situation where by not paying their workers enough by taking all the profits to one rich man in the United States. Um, and, and then even worse after NAFTA, I mean, we, we just set up all these, what they call them maquilas or maquiladoras, all these factories just south of the border where we could pay them nothing, offer them not even, um, 
any any type of unions or anything where they can protect themselves as laborers. And then they can see, they can literally see over the border the prosperity that is on the other side. And they, so we drain their economies of so much money and, and transferred all the wealth here. And then people get so mad about the money that, that, oh, they come here and they take our jobs and whatever, and they send money back to their families. Their families have nothing. But some rich guy in the United States is sitting pretty because he has exploited their workers, not cared about the murders that happen when they leave their job at the factory. I mean, we've just, we've created a situation where they turn to the cartels and then and and then we're mad about it. And the cartels and, act like a Robin Hood kind of thing where they're given back to the communities. They're they almost become the protectors. They actually protect from other cartels. Like if you if you live in a community, you actually love you might love that particular cartel because they're the ones offering employment. They're taken from the man and not, and like you said, like you not no, nobody else is offering you any, anything else. Like you you don't have You've been stripped of any chance of a, of a decent living. Exactly, and and so them immigrants trying to come across the border. I mean, they they're not just they're economic refugees. They're also uh, refugees of the violence. I mean, I, they do need asylum. Um, but okay, so I was gonna say one point that he says one major critique of the drug war is just that it can't be won that with every arrest, someone else takes their place. So he said, when Nixon first declared the war on drugs, he called for the complete annihilation. But now the goal has changed to damage control. But the whole point is that they can arrest somebody. They take out this kingpin. There's another one to take their place because there's so much poverty and the cartels are so huge. Yeah. So so we're not going to, it cannot be won the can, way we're doing it. And it never will be won. That's why, and that's where... People like what he was saying and what I'm saying, things pill a pill that's hard to swallow is this idea of legal heroin. Legal pot, we, we've swallowed that pill. Legal heroin sounds fucking batshit crazy. But it, it's a pill we have to swallow and we have to figure out how to do it in a safe way because you got to get the money out of the cartel's hands. And this is what happened with Prohibition with Alcohol. Prohibition with Alcohol did not work. Harry Anslinger took over the Prohibition Division of the United States government right as it was ending. And, it, and, it, and they, the reason it ended was they were like, we are having, you know, Al Capone's the best example, right? This gangster that, you know, everything that we've seen happening now was happening with alcohol. And th this idea that that the, the cannot be won um, is 100% accurate. But the problem is, if you, if you look at it uh, from a, the perspective of the DEA or one of these organizations, they started, you know, however many million dollars they were funded. Now they're a multi-billion dollar a year budget. And they and it's like more arrests, more people behind bars, more people are dead, more money is spent every year. And at what point do you say, hey, we can't, we can't win this. We figured out that all of the lives that were lost, all of the people behind bars, all of the money that was spent was all for nothing. And that's just how it is. Let's move on. No, that's not how human nature works. We go, it's no, we go, we didn't lose. We need a little more money, a few more lives, a few stricter prison sentences, and then we're going to win this. And they're going to keep saying this every year. It's a little more money. It's a little more this. And, and eventually, it will be realized that they're not going to win, and it will go the other way. But how much more do we want that to happen? How, at what point can we just say, enough's enough. Stop now. Stop spending the money. 
all the money you're spending on arresting people, and you're also going to have a lot of people lose their jobs. The whole industry is going to lose their jobs. The people who are literally, they pay all their bills, their whole livelihood is based on arresting people for drugs. So all of a sudden they're out of work. But now we create a new industry of your job is now to help people who are addicted to drugs, which sounds a lot better, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's the direction I think we need to go. Legalize, but it's not just legalize. You're going to profit off those legal drugs. They're going to become safer and cheaper for those addicted. And then the money you make with it, you're going to spend on helping people live healthier lives, not being addicts, not being a scourge on society. The scourge on society is the war on drugs. The people that are addicted are just, it's a mental health issue that we have not addressed. Yes, which is the American way, right? We don't address any mental health issues. We sweep them under the rug. You know we're not allowed to talk about them. You know why we don't address the mental health issues? Because it doesn't fit our narrative. We have a, Our country is based on extreme capitalist, pick yourself up by your own bootstrap. That's our culture. And the thing is, it's not the worst idea for getting people to be productive. I get it. But there is a certain level of people that will never pick themselves up by the bootstrap because they're not mentally right. They've went through things in their past. Some of them were sexually assaulted. Some of them were physically abused. Different things have happened, and they just are using drugs to self-medicate, or they have schizophrenia or bipolar. It's not not all of them are, all of them are even on drugs. Some of them are, are both. They schizophrenia led to drugs, and it's bad. It's a, it's, but anyway. They're not going to be able to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and get a job. They're going to be homeless unless we figure out a way to help them. I mean, have you? Did you? There was a documentary on Netflix I watched recently about this girl that went missing and ended up being found in like a water thing in the top of a hotel. I wish I remember the name of the uh, documentary, but it was it was a crazy documentary. But the main point that I took, the thing I got from it was a Skid Row in L.A. Do you know what Skid Row is? No. Skid Row, I've heard of it and I've seen pictures. It's a homeless area in L.A., but I didn't realize it was like 56 blocks in L- downtown L.A. 56 blocks have been designated Skid Row and blocked off by the police to the point where they sometimes they don't even let a homeless person leave because they're not welcome in the regular L.A. So they're basically quarantined there for their lives and drugs are just everywhere. Cops don't give a fuck what happens inside of it. It's just a huge block, uh, 56 blocks and it's all Homeless people and addicts, dirty needles, everything you could imagine. It's all happening. It's going to murder that um, Night Stalker murder guy. He was staying at this hotel, the Cecil, it's called the Cecil Hotel or the Cecil something. Um, but that's where this this thing happened. But it's just the craziest thing. But that, that, that to me was just a, like a crazy example of the homelessness problem in our country. I mean, there's people sleeping on the streets in every major city in the country, lots of them. And a lot of them are mentally unwell. They are sick. Like it, it's, but we, it's almost we. We don't want to believe mental illness is a real thing. Oh, you just don't want to work. You're just lazy, as if, yeah. as if that's desirable. Yeah. Like I'd be like, you know what? I wish I didn't have to work. I wish I could sleep on a sidewalk instead of go to my job. Like no, nobody wants yeah. to live that life. It's great. All of those arguments about. Um, people just wanting to mooch off the system, and it's just so crazy. If if we could give people jobs that actually paid a decent wage and um, bring unions back and treat our workers right. Uh, there's so much to that. Uh, people being unemployed, even right now during the pandemic, all these people are getting unemployment. Well, they, oh, they make more on unemployment than they do working. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. 
but um, that's not their fault. So. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to like the, the addiction thing in our country. If you if people have good paying jobs and have good lives, they're not going to become addicts. It's when a man say say a man who's uh, had has a decent job and starts a family who gets laid off, and his wife goes and um, you know she she's, she become, gets a part time job. She's supporting the family. He can't find a job. He feels like a piece of crap for not being able to support his family. This is what's happening in places like Ohio and Michigan, where people are laid off and they end up on drugs, and and it's it's like. You have to. We have to have a healthy society, and how it starts is making sure people have a way to support their families. And you know, I don't want to get political. I'll try to stay avoid that. But Andrew Yang was my favorite candidate in the DNC, and I read his book, um, and he talked about that. He said the problem: Mexicans aren't stealing our jobs. Automation is stealing our jobs, and it is going to continue to steal our jobs. And you're going to see a majority of our jobs in the next ten years are going to go away. Like truck driving jobs are going to be the first big one to go. And how do we do it? He's like, you tax the companies that are automating and you redistribute the wealth into the form of a, of a dividend for citizens. And um, there's a lot of economic things there that I, I don't even quite understand of how that would work, but uh, that's not my job to understand. But I'm just saying, I think that there's people out there like him that are thinking ahead because we have to do something because as more people lose jobs, addiction's going to go up. And especially as drugs are illegal, fentanyl overdoses are going to go up. You're going to see, you, yeah. think that, you think we've even touched the problem? We have not. The problem's going to continue to get worse until you do a few things. One is figure out the, econo- the economics of uh, automation. And two, uh, you legalize. And also, you want to create jobs. Legalizing is going to create a shitload of jobs. And uh, start with marijuana. I, I, I talk, I'm for all legalization of all drugs and regulation of all drugs because I want to stop the cartels from getting funded. I want to, um, there's a lot, there's a lot there, a uh, whole there we could talk about, but let's just start with federal, federally legalizing marijuana and start there. See how many jobs it creates in all the different States and, um, and see how, how you, and also see how you don't have the problems. Cause they've even said that they've had some crime go up in places like Denver when legalization happened. But the, but really what, what's happening when that, when those crime, when the crime goes up slightly, is that a lot of people that are living in places where pot's not legal see an opportunity or, or you know, and a lot of misfits and people that are messed up are the ones using illegal drugs because they, they, there's nothing else to lose. So they migrated to those cities. But if you legalized across the board, you would see that crime doesn't go up based on marijuana. It's not about yeah. that. So, and it could have had to do with also the, the banks uh, because the federal law still says regardless of what the states are doing, that weed is illegal. Yes. So they are basically subverting the the federal law, finding like loopholes in it to do what they're doing. And, uh, and so the banks were scared that if they took the money from these drug shops, from the weed shops, that uh, some they would become involved in an illegal activity somehow. So they were having to deal with all cash. So I think that probably cause some issues too because when someone knows you have a bunch of cash uh, it's like working at the bank as a teller they know you have a bunch of cash there's more robberies at the bank yeah kind of the same deal so. you're right this but this this magazine i got about this this is this is still in print at the, all the stands but this was i bought this like a year or so ago uh time magazine marijuana goes main street because because that was when they first are actually able to trade on main street was when that happened so they are actually trading it's still i still don't think it's federally legal but i think they've Companies that are now in existence where they are. What was that noise? Oh, it's your children. Yeah, I can't believe you can hear that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my my nephews, Sorry. how are they doing? Oh, they're 
good. They, they're a little bit, um, well, they've got the COVID fatigue, you know, it's been a little bit exhausting trying to keep them away from other people and, and limit what we do. We're trying to do nature things outside trails and things like that, but that's so awesome. Yeah. They're a little bit um, tired of coronavirus, but who isn't? Yeah. Actually, know. you know who isn't is us down here in Florida because it's, it's literally like it's not happening. I'm not kidding. It's almost scary. It's like, I mean, and I don't want to say scary because I'm honestly, I'm over it to the point where I'm like, uh, I've had it and I'm not worried about um, if I get it again, whatever. But it's just, it's ball, like, it's crazy. And I think everybody that's coming down here from up north, they're tipping us so much. Um, for anybody listening, I'm a musician. I play out at bars and stuff like that. I talked about it in my first podcast. But yeah, so people are just over tipping they're they're so happy to be like there's live music there's drinks there's people there's no social distancing no masks which by the way we're still supposed to be wearing masks it's not a thing but they just there's no enforcement they don't care and so like when i go to the restaurant i'll wear my mask while i'm walking around but i almost feel like i'm a weirdo like that's how they make me feel down here but i don't care i'm gonna wear the mask yeah Um, that's so weird because he you're, it's still a mandate that you have to wear a mask, but most places that I've been, almost everyone wears a mask. Like Trust it's, me. Coming down to Florida, it's like yeah. it's like it's getting in time. It's like getting in a pre-COVID time machine. It is, with the yeah. exception of the grocery store. When you go to the grocery store, and I think that's out of respect because I mean, it, it does say wear a mask on the grocery stores, but there's people that don't wear masks, and there's no enforcement for it. If you're not wearing a mask, nobody says anything. I said yeah, something to one person. I said all I said was. I was just a little annoyed because I forgot my mask. So I had to put, I put together this stank uh, bandana that had like stains on it in my glove box around my face. And I was like, I have to wear this, whatever. I go in and this guy's not wearing a mask. And I just asked the cashier, I was like, oh, we don't have to wear masks anymore? She's like, no, we're still supposed to be wearing masks. And the dude's like, yo, what'd that dude say? Yeah. And I was geez. like, yeah, I was like, um, I was just asking if we had a mask. We do. I didn't know. And, and then he like, he like tried to get in my face and I was like, all right, this is, that's when I realized it's not my job to enforce any of this. If they don't want to enforce it, that's on them. Why am I risking some guy getting in my face and either giving me COVID or punching me in the face and now I'm getting in a fight in a party? It's like, it's ridiculous. It's like, I right, don't say anything to people. People are very touchy about it too. So it's like, just, you're not the enforcer. You wear the mask and you just, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I get irritated too, though. Sometimes I say, come on, kids, there's something. Someone not wearing a mask, I'll get like loud where they can hear it. Like it's just so aggravating. You know, I think it's um, also though. It's like the reason they're so uh, ready to get offended is because they are tired of the mask thing. But the reason I'm getting offended about them not is that I'm also tired of the mask thing. Like I don't want to be wearing yeah. this either, man. It's like almost part of me is like yeah. a little jealous. I'm like, oh, you don't have to, but you do though. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's so it's frustrating. I just I just think it's it's completely selfish. But you know, that's not to get on that. Well, there that there was something I read about culture with uh, like like how Japan is such a like like their culture is so not about the individual that when they were told to wear a mask like nobody once said anything like oh it's to protect the spreading of a disease that could potentially kill my neighbors like oh no problem mask on go to work whatever and america is like what about my freedom it's all you know yeah. we have this very individualistic yeah. society it's like well if you have a if you have a pre-existing condition then stay home it's like well some of those people do stay home, but they have like a grandkid living with them or something, and they're not. And the grandkid's going to go out, so maybe don't. Maybe any chance we can stop the spreading of this potentially deadly virus? Is it that big of a deal to have a mask on? I, it, I don't like it. It sucks. I have to smell my own breath. 
Who cares, though? It's yeah. not the end of the world. Worst things have happened. Look at what's happened in Mexico. Would you, you know, just like reading, yeah. that, reading that book, it's like, oh, my God, these people live in a world that I can't even imagine. I'm reading a book about one family got murdered that just upended the whole community was just couldn't believe not what to think every night this community's like can you believe what happened you know to the family yeah. and, and and then it's like in mexico it's just like can you believe what happened at first and and, and then uh joe on hari's chasing the scream he was talking about the city um one of the cities directly south of the border the highest crime rate in the world and um he said that at first seeing a dead body in the streets freaked people out and they they, they call the you know it was crazy and now people don't even bat an eye they just walk by the dead body and go to work that's how normalized uh, and l- chopped up limbs on a sidewalk has been normalized to the point of just don't look at it go to work that's and and why like some of these stories that i've been reading about the war on drugs different things actually i'll tell you let me tell you one more story not about uh, el narco but about something that happened in the states uh, just because these are things to me that I think should be making the headline, like front page of New York Times, and they're not making yeah. it. But there was this uh, story in, um, I believe it was Arizona. This woman, um, so so they have this they have this uh, thing set up in um, Arizona, one of the prisons, and what they do is to they shame you for your crime. So you, they they print it on the back of your orange shirt what your crime was, and then you go work a chain gang on the road picking up trash. So, so this woman has a shirt that says "addict" on the back. Like, that's her crime, addict. Okay, first of all, that's not a fucking crime, being an addict. That's, that's called an illness, but okay. Okay, let's, let's shame them into, into what, getting better, to not wanting to do drugs. I'm pretty sure you're shaming me in front of everybody. I'm, I'm going to probably want to do more drugs. That's just my... Anyway, so it starts with that. So this woman works the chain game. I'm, I'm actually going to reread the story and do a whole bit about it because it's, it's, it's very important. But she, um, she, went, uh, she got in trouble, did something in the, in the prison, and got um, uh, solitary. But in this prison, solitary was a cage that was actually above ground near the yard, and it was outside in the in the Arizona desert. And they put her in the cage when it was like 110 degrees outside or something. And because of the you know with the metal, whatever the sun beating down, it got hotter and hotter. And she was yelling to the guards that she was too hot and that she thought she was going to die. And the guards were laughing at her and mocking her. And then she died, and she, she uh, her eyeballs melted out of her own head. That's how hot it was, mm. and um, that and that's something that happened in the United States of America, land of the free. An addict, somebody who probably was sexually, mos- you know, molested or something as a child that had this horrible life, and that's the thing. That's the thing people don't understand. A lot of these addicts, it's not like they just like I don't want to work. I want to smoke crack. I don't give a fuck. Fuck your fuck your life. You know, it's it's none of that. It's this is somebody. You know, imagine. And there's a thing about mental health that I don't think people, a lot of people realize. I was reading this uh, book about, it might have been Johan Hari's other book. But um, people that, that are sexually abused or physically abused when they're young, there's this, um, this is phenomenon that happens within human nature. Because it's in our nature to want to control things. We want to have control over our own lives, right? By all means, I want to be in control. So if you're seven or eight years old getting badly abused in some way by an older figure in your life like a father uncle or somebody you can't control that right yeah no. there's no control however you can control it mentally if you convince yourself it was your fault you say i was probably a bad i probably did something wrong to deserve that and i if i become a better person then this will stop happening cuz i can control so this psychological thing happens to children where they blame themselves and that's why because if they blame themselves 
then you know it, it it gets them into some control and it's complete bullshit but they live with this self-hate of I'm such a piece of shit and they blame themselves for these things that happen so then imagine you know they're 13 or 14 and they get turned on to drugs this is a way to get rid of yourself for a little bit I'm tired of being such a piece of shit I'm, and also you're not just believing you're a piece of shit some part of you also saying that that person abused me was was also bad it's both of them you can get rid of all that with a little hit of this drug or whatever it is and next thing, you know, fast forward five years, you're a straight addict, you're living on the streets. And when the cops come, what they do is they go, why are you doing heroin? Because you must have something really horrible wrong with you if you're doing heroin, so let's get you some help. And they give you a nice place to live, and they help you out, and they give you counseling. I'm just kidding. That does not happen at all. They take you to jail, where you now are getting physically and sexually abused somewhere else, another chapter yeah. of your life. And also, drugs are available there. And then they strap you with a shirt that says addict and you get to clean up trash for free. And then they're going to roast you in a cage. Yeah, that's and, horrible. And, um, and then that doesn't make the front page anywhere. I had to read about it in a book that somebody else did it. Some journal, you know, not some journalist, Joe Hanhari is one of my heroes, but he went and dug that up and that's how you hear about it. That shit should have been front page. Hey, we don't do that in this country. Everybody involves yeah. going, you know, you're going to jail now because the real crime is not being an addict. The real crime is locking somebody in a cage who burns to death. That's a crime. And that's yeah. worth being in jail for. Yeah, that is just horrible. Oh, my gosh. But these are yeah. all examples of the war on drugs and what they've caused in this world that we live in. So, so, so let, let me, let's, let's turn the conversation a little bit because you're a mother and you have this predicament of raising children and wanting them to be drug-free. Because why, you know, drugs are fun here and there, but you don't want your kids doing drugs. And they're so young right now, the idea of them doing drugs is insane. But, you know, they'll reach that age. And you've talked about, because you're still living close to where we grew up in Gastonia. You're living in um, Mount Holly. Mount Holly. And, um, and you've talked about moving to Asheville because you're, you don't want them to be around the, you know, because there is drug problems in Gastonia where we grew up. We grew up with, uh, there's a, we've lost a lot of friends. Yeah. That we grew up with. So so what what so tell me about the the you know how how that is being a mother in a world where drugs are the way they are and are as dangerous as they are. Yeah, well, Gaston County definitely has its its problems with prescription drugs. I mean, yeah, like you said, we know a lot of people who have died of prescription drug overdoses, um, the opioid problem. So yeah, I definitely don't, it really matters who your kids hang out with. So we, we want to influence them to choose to be around people that influence them to do good things. So uh, I don't know. I just hate for them to grow up around Gaston County. There's just so many drug issues. And I mean, I've heard it all from well, I have to have these pills because my back hurts. And I mean, every reason in the book, why, why they have the issue that they have. And of course, it's just, it's just really sad. I don't, should I talk about Justin at all? Or? You can. Yeah. yeah let's, let's talk. Yeah. Is that, if, that, if you're okay with that, you lost your first yeah. husband to a, to a drug overdose. Well, you, well, you were divorced, but he died soon yeah. after. Yeah. We actually, it, it had been one month since the divorce was finalized and I got a phone call saying that he had overdosed and died. And I, at first I, you know, we struggled with it for so long 
And I had such resentment, I, I hate it, but I, I did, um, about how things went down because of the addiction that I, um, you know, I, it's like I, could, I didn't even process it at first. I said, well, I knew this was going to happen. And then, it, and, and then it, like after a minute, I said, you mean my Justin? he, what, you know, I just couldn't believe him. Like he, he, he's dead. No, he's not. And I just, it just took me off. You know, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I said, well, I, I don't believe you that, uh, cause it was Stephanie who had called me. I said, well, I, I just don't believe you. I just didn't believe it. And I, um, so then I said, well, I'm going to call his family. So I tried to call his brother and he didn't answer. So then I called the grandparents house and his dad answered and I said, hey, have you talked to Justin? And he said, no, I haven't seen him in about two weeks. And I could not say it. I did not say, I, I said, well, I heard he overdosed. And I couldn't say and died. I just couldn't tell him that that's what I heard. And he said, well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, call us back. Yeah, and when that, I called that's him, his stepdad when you say dad? No, that was his dad. Oh, see, I've never met his real dad. I knew his stepdad. Yeah, no, at, at this time in his life, his, his mom and his stepdad were not involved in his life for, for most of the time that we were together. But basically, um, I guess this is the way a lot of overdoses go. He, he mixed some drugs that shouldn't have been mixed and then aspirated and died. So it was, But it was an opiate, right? Which one was it? Was it methadone? Mm-hmm, methadone and I think Xanax, alcohol. A yeah. good con- conglomeration it stop, it stops of lungs, stop you from breathing in your sleep. Yes. So they, his friends, I'll say friends with, ugh, but they, yeah, uh, I know those had, people. Yeah, they had left him. Yeah. Then, then, yeah, then he owed, he owed one of the drug dealers money, and they took his wallet before they called the cops or something. Oh yeah, yeah, they stole his wallet, so they. It wasn't even on him. It, it's just crazy. I, I don't remember all the details, but I, I do know that uh, he was 25 and he had a, a really bad drug problem. And I, as a young 20 nothing, you know, just didn't know how to handle it. I, I, I no. He should have gotten help. And, and well, that's another we thing. That's another thing with our society is that we're not taught how to handle that. We're taught that, you know, basically it's like, oh, you if you're on drugs, just get off. Stop doing it. Don't do that. You're being an asshole. Don't do drugs. Not understanding how hard a drug addiction is to beat. The 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 physical addiction of withdrawal from an opiate is actually really excruciating, and it's hard to beat it when when you start to go through withdrawals and there's a very easy fix. Just get another pill. You're fine. So I know. But but yeah, you're so young. You can't beat yourself up at all over that because how how the hell? None of us were are taught to deal with this. This is this is mental health in this country is not non-existent. And this is a yeah. problem. Justin, I, I grew up with Justin, and the problem was is uh is he he had problems from his childhood, from his parents' divorce, and from being mistreated by those that he never dealt with, and he needed the right counseling to deal with those issues. Drugs are just uh, so. so Johan Hari talked about it as I keep bringing him up like I'm just in love with this guy, but no, <laughs> he talked about um how there the, there's a problem with the addi- addiction is the smoke. If you look at a burning building. It's smoking. The smoke is not the problem. The smoke is is coming from the fire. The problem's the fire. Your house is on fire. So that's the problem. Mental illness with addiction is the problem is your house is on fire. You're not you have not dealt with childhood trauma. You have not dealt with um, maybe uh, you're bipolar, schizophrenic, whatever the uh, the root problem of causing you the problem needs to be dealt with. The addiction is just the smoke 
that you're seeing. That's that's the, that's your self medication, whatever it is. So we try to treat addiction by being like, well, your problem is, is you're an addict. No, Ad- that's not the problem. The problem is not I'm an addict. Yes, that's become a problem now, but the problem is this. So how about this? We start with addiction. We, we, we like for instance, you don't need to be doing drugs on the streets, mixing Xanax with methadone, with all these things. You need to be to a doctor to get you something that's not going to be lethal, and then also counseling. And that's never that burden should never be put on you as a young wife trying to just put a family together, not understanding addiction and being like, why are you doing drugs? Can we start up? You know, we're trying to start a family. You don't need to do drugs. And then of course he's going to lie about it. He's going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm just doing it for back pain and this and that. Yeah, no, lots of lots of that happens. Um, but I do agree. Like when I think back of the different times where I try to get him help, I um, brought him to the Celebrate Recovery at church, and he did maybe two sessions where they did a small group, and it seemed like it was really gonna help him. Like he he was sad and like I'm so sorry that I've been putting you through this, and I'm gonna get better. And then he just didn't, he, he would always go back and it was just, he just had a big problem. And I mean, that was the only resource that I knew to turn to the church. I also knew that there was drug rehab facilities, but you kind of have to, there's a stigma and you have to confront it, tell the whole family about his issue. You have to uh, kind of involve everybody. And I didn't, it seems so personal. I don't and, know. And there's like a shame aspect of it, right? Like, like it's almost like you got to shame him. You got to get everybody involved so we can make him feel like sh- it, it's that's strange to me. Let him, let his yeah. whole family know how much of a piece of shit he is. That's what we need to do. Let's do yeah. that. Yeah, I know. So I guess I didn't really know. I'm like, I know he needs a rehab, but how do I do it? Do I? How, how do we? I mean, he has to want to go. I, I just, I guess, I it was. I don't. I don't know. I did not know how to handle the the addiction. It was way more than I can handle. So eventually, yeah. I said, uh, I signed divorce papers to go sign them. So that that's how I handled it. That's there's nothing wrong. Know. There's nothing wrong with how you handled it. You did not know. There was no guidance there. There's never any instruction manual when you're young and in a relationship and trying to figure out how to fix somebody who's broken. You know, it's yeah. just not. It's, you can't take that burden. And it's sad. It's a sad thing. We've lost a few friends. I remember last time we were on vacation. Uh-oh. Lost, Uh-oh. I, I still hear you. That's all that matters. Lost the, the video. But, um, no, remember last time we were at the beach in Fripp Island and um, you're like, oh, Drew just died. And it was a text you got or something. Or saw on Facebook or something. I was like, Drew? Like Drew Simpson? Like, yeah. And I was like, drug overdose. I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah, I... Yeah, that is crazy. I, yeah, we we've known people to almost die. Uh, uh, even after what happened with their friends dying. So let me get my uh, charger. You think that's what's going on? Your charger? Maybe. Yeah, my phone's about to die. So um, I do want to see you one more time because I got to talk about some candles. I forgot about the candles. I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Um. While you're listening, I wanted, one thing I want to talk about was uh, you text me after you listened to the first podcast with my buddy Mike. Okay, and, um, almost, almost there. Yeah, I got, okay. about, got it. Yes. Okay. Good. You got it? Yeah, I got it. I still don't see you, though. Huh, so weird. 
All right, well, we'll just keep, we'll keep going, though. I can hear you. Okay, I see you, so that's weird. You don't you see do? me. Yeah. Hmm. All right, well, all right, we'll keep going. Well, I'm glad you can see me. That's that's what matters, because I'm going to show you some candles. But I just really quick wanted to talk about, um, uh, you text me, and you said, um, you said, I find it odd hearing you, because you listened to our first podcast with Mike, and you said, I find it odd hearing you talk about drugs like that, because I'm your sister. And I know I talked about, I believe, was doing cocaine or something. And I don't want to get it twisted. Like I, I have, I, I do drugs sometimes, but um, I don't regularly do really any drugs other than I smoke pot pretty regularly. And um, and I drink. Uh, I quit drinking for a while, but I've started back. But I'm not drinking much. I drink here and there. Um, but um, but I'm just curious why that's weird. Why is it weird for me to talk about drugs? Is it, it like? Yeah, I guess it has to do with well. Because they're illegal, and then um, kind of a, there's a stigma associated with people that do drugs, and not necessarily weed. Hearing someone talk about weed, right? When it's, so, so yeah, actually, I thought about it, and I was like, so I feel like it's like the institutions that raised us. They say like, if I'm doing drugs, then I'm not okay. Um, so when I say I do drugs and I am okay, like it goes against the narrative, and so you know, it's like. Um, like there's there's no there is no narrative that that fits in our our concepts that say I do cocaine sometimes and I'm life's great and I'm doing awesome you know I also skydive sometimes skydiving's dangerous doing cocaine could be dangerous you know different things like that um, and again I don't want you to think like I'm justifying doing cocaine regularly I don't do cocaine regularly at all but every once in a while I will um, and honestly, I don't really anymore because there's literally fentanyl in it. I had a buddy go to the hospital because he got some cocaine with fentanyl in it. So I honestly don't mess with it anymore because it's just too dangerous. But, but yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I, there's this perception also of, you know, like in the show Breaking Bad and it would show like this like crack house and these, exactly, these people yes. just laying around and they're half they're just completely glazed over near death. They've been shooting up. So when you start talking about more heavy drugs, I think people get that probably from Hollywood. They get that image. Hollywood or maybe they, from the, from the, um, the, you know, like dare programs that we grew up with from, from the media, all these things. They, they, and that's where like, for instance, Dr. Carl, Dr. Carl Hart, who I listened to on Rogan and I bought his book. He openly talks about doing heroin and cocaine. He's a Columbia uh, professor at Columbia university. And his whole thing, and this is where I, this is why I'm I'm being open is, there are very successful people. Again, I did I did last time or one of the last times I did cocaine was with a surgeon, um, a, a plastic surgeon. Um, he's like like almost seventy years old, awesome plastic surgeon. But um, the point is, is that there's very prominent, um, like very health like uh, well-to-do people who do these drugs who are not in like you said the picture of the Breaking Bad and the in the dilapidated house. Just, you know, the blinds all closed, doing drugs and sleeping all day. There are people that just live decent lives who do cocaine here and there, do other drugs. And that's what Dr. Carl Hart says. We got to change the narrative. And how we do it is we live our best lives and we, and we also are open about our drug use to let people know it's not just losers that do it. A lot of well-to-do people and people that are very happy sometimes like to experience different consciousness. Sometimes I like to, I mean, my biggest thing is psychedelics. I eat mushrooms all the time. And I don't mean all the time. Like, I don't think it should be all the time. But, like, um, a, a few times a year I have a good mushroom trip. And it's, I think it's very beneficial. That's my, that's my thing that I like. But Yeah, yeah. 
I can see, I can definitely see that it's because yeah, there is a stigma associated with it. And, um, and even actually this is a good example with alcohol because alcohol is a legal drug and it, and you're allowed to talk about it and it's completely normal and no one looks down on you for having some drinks on Friday night. And, and it needs to become that way, especially with weed. Especially with weed, but let me say this. Alcohol is a hard drug. You talk about hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, and you want, you want to talk about marijuana. Marijuana is not a hard drug. Alcohol, I would put up there with cocaine and heroin. Alcohol kills more people than cocaine and heroin. Alcohol is very addictive. Alcohol is one of the few drugs. For instance, if you quit heroin cold turkey, you have horrible withdrawal effects, but they're not lethal. Alcohol, the withdrawal effects are lethal. Alcohol is one of the worst drugs as far as being a hard drug. So I, I don't like it when people go, well, hard drugs. But that's how. But I'm not hating on you either because that's literally the way that we were taught. Hard drugs are meth, heroin, coke. Alcohol isn't even a drug. It's drugs and alcohol. It's a separate thing. No, alcohol is a hard drug. And um, it's a very social drug. And that's why everybody likes to do it because it's like there's other – like smoking crack is not a social – it's, I don't think people are like, let's go get together and smoke some rocks and have a great conversation. It's a weird drug to do. Alcohol is very, just everybody gets some happier and has a great time and talks. And I have no problem with people. I think if you're an adult, you get to do that, but do it safely. And the same with other drugs. I think we just have to look at, we have to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh. I agree. Yeah. I. Oh, oh go, sorry. Well, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say on the point of it being your own body, I, I really don't understand why a person can't have a small amount of, for recreational use of, of especially weed, to, to do what, what they want to. We are the land of the free, and this is a huge conservative argument that I have the freedom to do whatever I want, and yet you aren't allowed to smoke this natural herb that grows in the ground and makes you feel a little bit giddy like it, you can drive high you can do all kinds of stuff high that well, you can't even do you're drunk. not supposed to drive high apparently um i, I mean, no i know you're not supposed to but i'm just saying you can it's, it's saying, safer to drive higher than it is drunk for sure now that was my point yeah definitely but when you say we are the land of the free the only problem i have with that statement is i've been arrested too many times in this country for possessing marijuana to call it the land of the free I think we should be the land of the free. I think we have the constitution that would allow it if we would end the war on drugs and stop arresting people for, per- like you said, if you have a personal, and you specified weed, if you have a personal amount of any drug, who is the government to tell you what you can put in your own body? That's, that's the freedom number one. That's liberty. Liberty is my right to do whatever the fuck I want to do as long as I'm not stopping somebody else from doing what they want to do. Oh, you know what I just thought of I want to talk about? Because I just said the F word that loud. Um, you said one time we were talking about cursing. And I thought this was a cool thing you said. But I was like, I was like anybody who's child enough, or ch- childish enough to be offended by a curse word needs to grow up. And you said, I don't want curse words to be normalized. And you know, I don't remember how you worded it. But you said it, you don't want them to be normalized. You want them to be offensive so that when you use them, they have power. You know, Because when you are really mad about something and you want to let somebody know... And you never cuss. If you do, you're, you're allowing that word to keep its power. And I was like, that's so uh, such a cool way that I never thought about curse words. That it's not that you're... Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and then I, I kind of tied that... I was like, well, with the drug thing, it's the same thing. If you normalize 
uh, heroin and all these drugs that we've we've put on this list of being illegal, and you make it to where you can go to a doctor and get it, do we strip it of the allure, the power that like there's an idea with you're an outlaw if you're getting these drugs. There's almost a part of it that's cool in that way. We can strip all of the coolness out of it by being like, oh, you're you're on heroin. Yeah, I went to the doctor, and you know, it's like that's not cool. We can strip it the way you're talking about curse words. Yeah. Well, I was also going to say to the point of us being able to do what we want with our bodies, if they were to legalize marijuana nationwide, I personally do not like the feeling of being high. So I will not be one that goes out and says, well, now that it's legal, I'm going to do it. I'm still not going to do it. It's not the law that's making me not do it. It's my desire to not do it that's making me not do it. Which is how it should be. That's your right. You don't have to do it. And that's what I try to tell people. Like, well, I don't want it to be legal. Well, then don't smoke it. Like, you, yeah. nobody's saying if it's legal, now you have to be high all the time. Nope. You still don't You still don't have to be high. For instance, my wife, Megan, she doesn't like weed either. She doesn't like the way it makes her feel. I've, I've tried it, give it a few times, and every time she gets all paranoid and doesn't like it. So she's not going to either. Yeah. And, that, and that's my thing. I, I'm, it, it makes me way too paranoid. Every word I say sounds weird. I don't even want to talk. I just wish I wasn't high. So yeah, I'm definitely not going to go get high when it does become legal. But uh, I do like drinking and that is a drug and I will do it socially and whenever I'm stressed out. So. Exactly. And you'll, and you'll do it safely and you won't drive and you know, you know, you know, and that's, that, that's the thing. You're an adult and you're going to do drugs like an adult. And it sounds crazy to say you're going to do drugs, but that's what I consider alcohol. You're not going to do illegal drugs. You're going to do the one that you know and trust and that's alcohol. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're an adult. You get to do that. And yeah, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up. Um, because I want to go cook dinner and maybe it's waiting, but before I go, there's something I wanted to do at the beginning. But I forgot, and it's too late now. But do you, can, you can st- see me still? Yes. All right. So our, every podcast, because you and Mike were talking about the candle, I'm gonna have a, a pick a candle, and you're gonna, and we're gonna burn it for for the podcast because these burn fast. I realize we can do one per podcast. So you got to pick the color. And even though I'm not gonna be able to let it burn the whole time we're doing the podcast, I'm gonna burn it after I get off with you and let it melt over over the bottle of liquor I drank with Mike on the first podcast. So do you see the colors? You get your choice of red, blue, pink. Purple, black, white, orange, yellow. Okay, I guess pink. Sweet. That was my favorite color, so I bought two of them. And I wanted that to be the first one, but I didn't want to pick for you. So oh, okay, cool. That is exciting. So I'll show you. So this is the bottle. I don't know why me and Mike were like, Mike's like, don't tell, don't tell them what brand it is. They don't sponsor us. But it was Sexton um, um, Irish whiskey. It was very good. So I'm going to burn it. I'm going to make this whole, this is going to be the first season of the podcast. It's going to be one candle after another for the podcast. So that's pretty cool. Okay. But I gotta say, this podcast went honestly better than I even thought. I, I really, really like your opinion on these things, and um, and I want you to be on again. I want to, you know, we'll, we'll we'll do this again. We'll talk about different things. Some some things we didn't get to get in more depth with. I'd like to get into do a podcast about Gastonia, but Gastonia, like I feel like it could be like an anthropo- anthropological study done about that that specific suburb because it was a, its own city separate from Charlotte. And then when the mill shut down, it kind of became a, a weird suburb of Charlotte that kind of wasn't accepted by Charlotte. It's a very strange little city. Yeah. Ugh. So I know it's depressing to get into, but we, we literally, we've met, we had some great friends from there. We've lost some friends from there. Um, but it would be, I'd like to talk to you more about Gastonia. But again, I don't want to get into it now. I'm going to go make dinner. But um, it was really, really great talking to you about all these things. And I'm, 
so glad you you know you listened to the audiobook the El Narco. Um, who is that by? I should yeah, I should... Um, Yoan Grillo. Okay, so yeah, well, um, I, I do recommend it. I didn't I didn't like the narrator that much. He wasn't horrible. He was just a little too animated sometimes when he was talking about horrible things. And also, did you notice how bad his American accent was? Oh, I didn't really. No, I didn't really notice it. Every once in a while, he would read like he'd be reading a quote in American set, and he would do an American accent. I was like, "That's such the obvious awful American accent." It was so funny, but no, the book oh, itself I, was very well written. It, it was. It it definitely elaborated on a lot of points like, to the extreme. But yeah. um, I was gonna say though, a, a movie, two movies that I've watched in the past that this book kind of brought to mind that I think you would like to watch or, or maybe anyone who would be listening. Um, there was one called Sin Nombre, which means without a name. And it's about... Um, Sorry, a, you, you a, kind of cut out, you said with, without a name, Sin Nombre? Yeah, okay. Sin Nombre. And it, you have to read it. But it, it was such a good movie. Like it, it just really showed the problem of someone trying to escape. Because remember, we did talk about in the book how they, they can't escape from the drug cartels either, and that's basically what, what the movie was about. And then uh, another one, Maria Full of Grace. A lot of people have probably seen that, but it's about uh, one of the ways that they smuggle cocaine where the women would, they would get women to like ingest it, and it would be in these like latex latex sacks in their stomach, and then they would have to fly in an airplane and then take laxatives and get it out but when they got to the united states yeah but if it was to burst in them yeah, they would just them. od and die yeah so and, and that, that, and that a, sorry that one was called one more time maria full of grace maria full of grace i have heard of that one i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna watch both of those yeah, yeah they were good movies that really highlighted that issue of, of the trafficking and and the a cartel so i will watch both of those and um and thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're the second guest. Very excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Right. And um I don't we'll have you back on soon and of course I'll talk to you way before that. So Okay. All right. All right. Well bye. I love you. Love you too. All right. All right, bye. All right, bye. Peace, Peace out. out.